I don't do okay. I, I don't do an intro because it, it just it seems cheesy to do an intro. So, it, first off, explain what you do. Obviously, I know you're a nurse, but explain like what your field is and what you do. So, I'm a nurse practitioner for the hospitalist service at a hospital um, in Connecticut. And we do internal medicine in a hospital. We admit almost all of the patients um, in the hospital except for surgical patients and ICU patients. And generally, we are um, involved in uh, surgical patients anyway because they like to keep a medical consult on board. Um, So we have an active presence on every in the hospital except labor and delivery unless they need it. Um, and that includes the ER. Um, and then we will take patients out of the ICU when they've recovered onto our service. So when did COVID first come on your radar? When was like, your hospital concerned about it? And like, what was the initial reaction to it? So January was when I started noticing that the emergency department was running drills um, and prepping rooms. Um, They were trying to create as many negative pressure rooms as possible for the possibility that this could be an airborne infection um, and kind of following in other countries' footsteps that we should be really isolating these patients. Um, And then probably in March is when I saw that the rooms were actually ready, Um, but it wasn't until I was already out sick, the rooms were ready on like multiple floors and that many of our regular units had become IC units with negative pressure rooms, which was an amazing feat. Like the, they did a great job. So you were, they were already getting ready back in January. This is still when like the World Health Organization was saying they weren't even sure if it transferred from human to human. Yeah, so I thought that was funny because I hadn't even read that the World Health Organization had even said that. I ended up seeing it in a tweet that somebody retweeted that I had just started looking uh, yesterday. And I was like, oh, that's ironic. Um, But I think, you know, we are lucky to be affiliated with a hospital that is research driven and they have thousands of patients and and so many doctors that are you know from all over the world keeping an eye on things and they prepped um before i think i even had heard anybody say coronavirus i think i had maybe heard it once or twice and didn't really think much of it and then was wondering what's everybody doing down here like you know all the suits were walking around, looking at rooms, looking at equipment. And that's kind of when I said something serious must be going on. What kind of concerns me and, and, and it's a, it scares me about that is that we were being told, even Dr. Anthony Fauci back then was saying that this is something that wasn't a concern over here. But obviously there must have been something else said behind the scenes if you were already seeing your hospital prep for it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, you know, I don't, I'm not privy to a lot of information. Um, you know, I have no administrative role, but there were so many meetings going on um, before we had even seen our first patient or even had heard of a case in the States. We were just kind of 
waiting uh, for it to happen, um, waiting for tests to become available. I think that was the biggest issue is we didn't have tests um, fast enough and we had a high suspicion that we had cases in the hospital um, but had such limited testing. Um, but, you know, I, we still did a really good job. I mean, anyone who had suspicion was isolated and we tried to reverse track any contacts they might have had. You know, just gave everybody as much info that we had at the time, which is, you know, wasn't much. But I still am pretty impressed looking back how quick everybody mobilized, um, you know, in my hospital at least. When did you start seeing like an influx like do you know when your first patient was or around the time when you started seeing like an influx of patients so we had our first uh tested positive confirmed case probably the first week in march um and it was really like we had literally only had that one patient for about a week that we could confirm had and then the day that I last worked, we had seven cases in the hospital and then some potentials that were in the emergency room. Um, and then literally the day that I tested positive, which was three days later from the last day that I worked, uh, we had 70 positive cases in the hospital. So that was like over a four day period. When, when did you test positive? So I tested positive March 23rd. Uh, I was super lucky. I had developed symptoms abruptly on the 22nd and was able to get tested in-house at my hospital. And they were able to turn that test around within six hours. Um, so I was lucky. I think that a lot of people that are testing negative probably haven't replicated enough virus yet. Like they are starting to have mild symptoms. Um, and I probably was having some low-level symptoms that I didn't even recognize. And then when it hit me, I had so much virus, viral load in me that I was lucky to test positive. That must have freaked you out when you first, like, how did you feel when you first came back with the positive results? So I had a feeling um, the day before, a really strong feeling that I had to be positive. You know, so I went in at like 10.20 to get tested on a Monday and waited for hours. Um, I was in isolation. I was anxious, but I knew I was positive. Um, and I, I mean, I just had a gut feeling, but I had the most tremendous team of people backing me up, basically. Um, one of our ER doctors called me and just was so... Uh, comforting. He said, you know, your, your test is positive. We're here for you. Um, just come in um, if you develop these symptoms. And then we reviewed what symptoms I currently had had. And, you know, he made sure that I had what I needed uh, to kind of monitor myself and then just told me not to be afraid to come in and that they would take care of me. And then my boss called because um, she got uh, wind of the results as well, um, basically because she had or ordered it, the test for me. And, you know, she said the same thing. We'll take care of you if we need to, but you're strong, you're young, you're going to crush. So <laughs> thank God I'm still yeah. alive. 
Yeah, thankfully you are because, uh, I mean, you know what happened with my cousin. It's not a, it's not a private thing. I, I, I put it out there. It's pretty – it doesn't – my point being is that being young and healthy doesn't really mean anything with this virus. It's very strange. You know, they're, yeah. They're, so you must have had like a roller coaster of emotions at first because you don't – it's almost like you don't know what the hell you're in store for. No one really does when they get that, that positive diagnosis. Yeah, I, I basically kept a journal um, when it started of symptoms because I thought this might be helpful at some point just to kind of identify what's going on with people. Uh, and I had, I mean, my initial reaction was I, I basically started sobbing. I don't know if it was because I was so anxious um, or because I just didn't know what was in store for me. Um I just knew that I had to be super vigilant and not try and be a hero and wait it out. Something were to happen if I were to notice something, um, I really needed to kind of just go in if I needed to. But luckily, I did not need to. When was it? Like it was, you said it was mild when it first started out. When was did it start getting really bad? What was your worst symptoms, and how long did it take to get there? So actually, the for me the worst was the first three days. Um, the like the day that I thought I started having symptoms, which was a Sunday. Um, like the cough was so abrupt, um, the way it kind of hit me, and that was the one of the worst days for the cough. Um, and then I had a pretty dry cough for the next three days. And it, I, the only way I could describe it, and it sounds kind of dramatic, it was so dry that I felt like I was choking or I needed to drink so much water because I just felt like this crazy amount of dryness. And, you know, I had low grade temp the entire time. Those pretty much never went away until maybe like day 21, I finally didn't have a fever. But day twenty one. Holy shit. Yeah. What was yeah. the highest your temperature was? I couldn't imagine having a temperature for twenty one days. Well what was the highest so, it was? So I ran uh, ninety nine point two to a hundred. The day that I was a hundred was the day that I felt the worst, but I always felt like I had a fever. I knew I had this like low grade naggy fever. And, you know, typically in the hospital and as medical providers, we, we don't really say anything about a fever in like 100.4 or above um, because that's just what we don't classify it as a fever if it's 99. But with this disease, you know, we lowered the threshold a little bit um, just for monitoring purposes, although we didn't lower the threshold for testing. So most people who qualified for testing because of the lack of are people who had a fever over 100.4, although our ER is testing everyone that comes in the door, no matter um, at this point, just because we know now that you may never have a fever um, or you may just run the low grade. Yeah, there's, they're saying there's people that have it and are just permanently asymptomatic. They never actually develop symptoms. So that's... And then they could spread it to Lord knows how many people, and then those people could get sick. It's re- it's that's the strangest thing I think about this is that 
I've never like usually like if someone spreads a cold, everyone gets symptoms. This is a, they're saying that thirty percent of people may not get nothing, but they could still be infectious and spread it to other people. Yeah, it is kind of creepy, um, but in a way, it brings me hope because I'm hoping that there are people that are asymptomatic that are developing antibodies. Um, and then we just don't know it yet because we're not tested. Um, but then when we do test and we get ready to reopen the economy, maybe there will be that many more people who then get infected, you know. What do you think about reopening the like do you I'm hearing that they don't even know if it'll keep your, your immunity like at all. They don't even know if, if, if you become immune to it even after you were infected like. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that. I don't I don't have a good answer. Um, I think that there's risk to reopening the economy, but I think there's risks of not reopening the economy. I think that, you know, uh, a lot of the doctors that I listen to on podcasts are, talk about how, you know, letting the economy completely crash will affect so many people. You know, it would be like... Um, COVID deaths that are not actually from COVID, but from the precautions that we're taking to prevent the spread of COVID. So I think, you know, the politicians, the policymakers, the, our government is damned if they do and damned if they don't, I think are going to have to make some decisions and people are definitely going to be affected by these decisions. Um, yeah, someone's going to be affected negatively, whether it's you know, people lose their businesses, lose their job, you know, lose their life because they don't have money coming in. Um, that would be if we didn't open the economy. And then if we do and the second wave comes sooner than we think, you know, it's going to hurt those people who get sick and, you know, potentially more health care workers who are, you know, constantly being exposed what do you think about Georgia already opening places like gyms and bowling alleys and places where it's near impossible to do any kind of social distancing? Uh, that kind of drives me nuts. I feel like gyms are probably the last thing that should open, um, especially if it's class type gyms, um, which sucks because I am a huge a fan of CrossFit and Orange Theory. Um, Orange Theory, we are really close together in those group classes. You know, I think though that like a regular gym, um, if they do slots where people can sign up and open and people, you know, are not close together on machines, I mean, you know, that makes sense. I think movie theaters, you know, if they, you know, only allowed certain people in and then you had like an assigned seat, um, you know, I just think it's so hard. It's so hard to know, you know. Well, especially like the, I you could make I guess an argument, and, and you're a nurse practitioner, you would know more than the like. All right, restaurants, maybe movie theater. If you let like if there's a huge movie theater and you have only like ten or fifteen people in there and they're sitting very far apart, but like it, you know, you go to I go to a gym too, and people are disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like no matter what, I don't care if the guy, the manager cleans it every morning. Like they showed a guy in Georgia disinfecting everything. People are disgusting and they're not going to, you know, there's going to be people that don't care and are going to leave their sweat and everything all over. Like, that's, I guess, the part that concerns me is that 
it, it's almost like it's a ticking time bomb. I mean, I'm not, look, I know the economy needs to open back up, but I just feel like people are rushing it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when this thing whole, when this entire thing started, I kept saying, okay, if we're going to follow China, then we're going to need to be quarantined in our homes until the end of May. And that, you know, so our state is looking at a May 15th open date. And I'm like, you know, listen, I'm in the middle of a house renovation. My whole renovation is on hold because of this. Um, because some of the, the things that I need are considered non-essential, so they're not open. I want to open the economy too, but at the same time, like, I feel like I would feel personally responsible if the people that are doing my get sick. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, not that it would be me that gave it to them because I'm not living in the house. You know, I think we need to stay closed through June and then do a light open um, where we open certain things and, you know, keep our vulnerable people at home and see see what happens. See if we have this spike in our numbers. And if we don't see a spike in numbers, then maybe softly open some other stuff, Um, you know, because I like... I just, I don't know how else we can do it unless they're going to mass test everyone for antibodies. But again, who the hell knows how long we're going to keep those antibodies? I mean, I could have antibodies. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, they don't even know if those antibodies work. They're saying that they're they're not 100% sure you can't get reinfected. So it's really, that's the part I think scares me the most. I mean, I'm sure you're concerned too, because now you're back in the metaphorical line of fire because you're back at work. Yeah, I thought, man, I wasn't really too scared until I was in the patient with, um, I I was in a patient room and, and she was intubated. I just was like, oh God, this is like the worst room to be in right now because there's so many droplets everywhere. Um, you know, she, she wasn't in a closed intubation system, so there was definitely droplet particles out there. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. But then I just had to think, you know, I'm wearing tons of uh, personal protective equipment, which I was not wearing when I was infected. And who the hell knows where I was infected? I mean, think strongly it was at the hospital because we hadn't tested everybody. But, you know... It's possible that I got it in the community. I mean, God knows. So um, I'm anxious at work, but I'm also um, grateful to be back because I feel really empathetic towards these patients. And I am not as sick as them, but I know like to have this disease and be isolated and alone and afraid and, um, you know... It's a lot. It's crazy. It's like you call the family and then you also talk to the patient and it's like you're basically doing therapy for everyone because everybody's so traumatized. Um, You're just it's a lot of hand holding, but it's helping me uh, because that's kind of what I live for is um, literally helping other people, especially when they're in this kind of crisis. How many people are you, I mean, you're obviously not in the epicenter, which is has to be New York City at this point. Um, it is. How many people are you seeing that are 
suspected of COVID or COVID positive uh, a day? I mean, uh, you obviously may not have a number, but how, is there an influx, like a huge influx or? So when I, the, my first day back to work, I think there were uh, approximately 238 patients in the hospital. And I think 210 of them were all COVID positive. Our, our hospital oh, is basically a COVID oh, hospital shit. right now. Yeah. Um, uh, across our health system, which includes many different hospitals, we've discharged uh, 1,404 patients. Um, so that's a good thing. So that's 1,400 uh, people have recovered. Um, and we're not we're doing a really amazing job. We're really keeping people, um, I think, a while and keeping an eye on them maybe more than we would need to in, like, another situation. Like, for instance, the flu because of all these crazy complications. Um, and we're also, because if they came from an assisted living facility or a nursing home, a lot of those places won't take their patients back until they test negative. So, we're hanging on to people, and I think that's a good thing because it sounds like there are hospitals that are seeing people return after being discharged, and they may be sicker. Um, and you know, we have had a few that were uh, extubated and then needed to be reintubated because they weren't quite ready. Um, but we we've seen a lot. Um, you know, ba- basically every day that I have. 10 to 15 patients and they're all COVID positive. Now, are you seeing a lot of, uh, are there a lot of young and who people would consider healthy patients having to be intubated or? Yeah, there are a few. Um, We've definitely had a few young people. Um, I I personally haven't had anyone under the age of 30 that's needed intubation, um, but as my own patients, but I know they exist. Um, and we, I did myself discharge um, a patient that was in their 20s uh, with the disease. I also had a patient in their 30s with no other known medical problems who uh, has been in the hospital for weeks, um, doing well, but it's a really, really slow recovery, I think people don't realize, I mean, even if you're not intubated, the levels of oxygen that you need, uh, you're not moving. Uh, I, I will sit in a room with a patient who's on a, on a high flow oxygen, which is just a large volume of oxygen, and they will move their arm and their oxygen levels will drop to, like dangerously. So we're basically saying don't move. Um, you wow. know, because when wow. they move, they, they're just expending so much energy that they can't, That's can't oxygenate rather. That's insane. So, you know, you told me that you see things there that are, are horrors that would make people realize it's even worse than you see in the news. It, it must you you see it must frustrate the crap of you whether it be on social media or whatever the case may be where people are trying to make it like this is not a big deal or it's fake what what it's the hell a, what the hell would you say to those deal. people so um 
Well, I think the thing that's getting me the most heated right now is this YouTube video that somebody posted um, from these two that have an urgent care out in California. And they're basically saying these patients just, they have the flu, the death rates are not more than the flu, yada, 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 yada. And I just want to say that this is nothing like the flu. I've never seen anything like, I've treated patients for the flu since 2007, and I've never seen the complications that I'm seeing in these patients. I've never seen a flu patient uh, develop an arterial blood clot. Like uh, the, the, the clotting that is happening in this disease is complete insanity. It is so scary. Like people are at risk of, uh, people are having strokes. Um, people are having PEs and blood clots. And I mean, this is not normal. This is not something I've ever seen with any other infection. Um, they seem to be more hyper uh, coagulable than a cancer patient. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Um, so basically, to anyone who is saying that this isn't serious, I really just like f you and stop hitting me in the face. Like you're risking my life. You're risking other people's lives. You know, this isn't a joke. This isn't like, I keep thinking in my mind, like, this is not a drill. Like, this is real. And this is just the beginning. And that's the part that's amazing to me. I just did a video talking about how um, they're saying that social distancing is probably going to go on throughout the summer. And there's people literally in the comments section of my video saying, ah, it's a hoax. I'm like... (laughs) I know people that have passed away from this. I know people that work on the front lines of this. It's not a hoax. It's real. And it's, I don't understand how you could see science and medicine and facts and numbers and just think that it's make-believe because one person on YouTube told you that it is. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the thing that stinks is that we just don't have the data yet for all of us that are just working, we're literally working to just manage the patients patients right now. And I think the added time of more social distancing when these numbers go down may help us prepare for the second wave so that we can make sense of all of the data because it seems like every hospital has a different protocol um, for how they're managing these patients. And we really need to figure out what's actually working um, because if we don't do that and then we go through this second wave and you know we're st- we're going to have a ton of complications that we're seeing now we need to figure out how to prevent these complications uh, you know there's a lot of preliminary data but there's small studies some of them aren't peer reviewed yet i mean it's so we are so early on in this like I'm telling you, in the fall, we're going to be so much better prepared, but we need the time um, to let everybody look at all of this data so that we can get it right. Um, and not that we're getting it wrong. It's just that we're not getting it perfect, obviously, because we don't have a cure. Um, and also, it's just like as a reminder, like most viral illnesses don't have a cure. We have medic medications that help like abate symptoms and get you through 
the process faster. Like Tamiflu is not a cure. It, it, it helps you get through flu symptoms faster. So you feel better fast. A, um, a valcyclovir, uh, for, for herpes and shingles, it doesn't cure the disease. It, it abates it a little bit so that, you know, you don't have to suffer as much. Um, so, you know, people who think we're going to find a cure, that's probably not accurate. Um, but you know, vaccines and medications that again, make it so you can recover and and anything that helps you to not die basically i think is what we just need to figure out so we can do a better job the next time around and believe me we're not doing a bad job we're just doing the best we can it's a novel virus it's a new virus so you're you're, you have to kind of piecemeal it and go day by day because you don't know it's new (laughs) it's no one knows what to expect from it yet um they, I, I've read that they've never made a successful vaccine for coronavirus. So, what would make this different? Uh, you know, I, I remember I saw you being skeptical a while back, and now I, I give you credit. You were right. Like, do you think we ever will see a vaccine for this, or is it even going to work, even if they they approve it, or uh, it's just? So uh, I think we'll see a vaccine. I think what happened with the first coronavirus vaccine or the SARS vaccine is the one, the original SARS, uh, oh, geez, what, 2003. It didn't work, um, and then they kind of abandoned it, and then we didn't really see, like, a reemergence of the disease, I think. I'm not completely sure. I know MERS was also happening, um, which is the Middle Eastern uh, respiratory virus. Um, and I don't think there's a vaccine for that either. Um, but I think that this is a world emergency. Uh, we've seen deaths have exceeded SARS and MERS. So I think we're motivated. Um, and I think one of the things that might, well, that will help is the technology is better. Um, you know, now it's 2020. We, we may get a faster vaccine. You know, the only thing you know, I would say is that we just don't want to push uh, human safety trials too fast because we all want a vaccine, but we want it to work and we don't want it to harm people because we would be giving this vaccine to uh, babies and um, older adults and not just um, volunteers. It's going to be, you know, probably something that's more like a flu vaccine where we need to get yearly. So we got to get um you know, I was I'm super skeptical skeptical about um, I can't even speak about like a, a vaccine within a year um, or even two years, but you know maybe maybe it's possible. Yeah, I remember seeing you on Facebook saying that that you just don't see how that could be possible that they get a vaccine that quick. Yeah, I just I mean I listen a lot to um, Paul Offit who created with other people the rotavirus vaccine and that vaccine took 26 years to make um but again we have so much different technology now and uh you know we're super motivated i mean people uh i I guess the point is like the financial incentive needs to be there so we can't let people forget that this happened um, and hopefully people won't forget how awful it has been just to be trapped in their homes um, because we don't have treatment or a vaccine. 
Well, I remember one of the things I was reading in a few places that they, there was a chance that if we had a vaccine for the original SARS, because there wasn't a, f- a financial incentive there because there wasn't enough people infected, they're saying that there was a chance that that could have gave people antibodies against this version of SARS. So that that that's the thing that kind of frustrates me too is that to if there isn't the financial incentive there, the people just or the companies just kind of give up on the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally not a scientist, but I feel like um, it's possible that um, any kind of vaccine against a coronavirus might have helped, but. Um, I just, I don't, I'm not, I'm not that smart. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either. That's just what I read. And it just, you know, who knows if that, you know, God forbid that, you know, version of coronavirus comes back up or, you know, it mutates and that becomes infectious too. Maybe if, if we had that, you know, vaccine, it would be worthwhile now. I mean, I think the theory with the flu vaccines are that we don't always get the strains right, but at least we've had exposure to something and that, hopefully is why we fare better. I mean, I say to people, listen, you get the flu vaccine, not so you don't get the flu. It's so you don't die from the flu. You know, in the best case scenario, yeah, nobody would get the flu, but there's a lot of strains. So just get the vaccine so you don't die. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's usually what, how I try to reason with people. It just amazes me all the conspiracy theories around vaccines, including the flu. And there's people I know to this day that that refuse to get that vaccine. And I'm just and what's amazing me about those people is that they they drink and smoke. (laughs) So it's like you're worried about, you know, getting a vaccine and you have all these conspiracy theories about it, but you're killing yourself another way. And I don't know. I, I mean, I get the flu vaccine every year. And one of the things that I'm afraid of, too, is if they do get a successful vaccine for it, there's going to be like conspiracy theories and uproars about it because there's conspiracy theories about the virus in and of itself, let alone a vaccine for it. Yeah. Well, you can only protect yourself and, you know, do what is right for you. We're never going to probably we're probably never going to um, impact anti-vaxxers. it just we just won't they don't they really are a strong community and i just don't think we can ever win them over but i think that if you are safe and you have the vaccine at least you will feel that you can go out and live your life um and then hopefully you can convince your own family members to do that i mean Listen, I didn't get an annual flu vaccine until um, it was a requirement to keep my job um, in 2009, 2008, whenever swine flu H1N1 happened. And I just, I mean, I was getting flu vaccines at work, but we never needed to show proof of it or anything. You know, I've gotten a flu vaccine every year since, and I never thought anything of it. I, I believe in vaccines. Um I don't want anyone to get any of the diseases that are out there that we have a vaccine against. It's, you know, people could die from all of these things. And, you know, this is the most exciting kind of medicine. Infectious disease is literally like the only thing that we can uh, fix, that we can, we can cure. Like everything else, all these other diseases that people make money off of, these are lifestyle choices. You know, you have COPD while you're smoking and, you know, that's a disease that you could have never had, you know. Um, 
well, some of it is not lifestyle choice, of course, if you, you know, work and you're exposed and there's chemicals and whatnot. But I mean, you know, diabetes, there's so many lifestyle choices you can make so that you don't have to be on meds. And then here we are, we have these like antibiotics that can cure bacterial infections and we can have anti antivirals. And then we have, you know, like the HIV drugs that do amazing things. I mean, this is the exciting part of science and people seem to be more interested in, you know, lifestyle stuff because it makes more money. It's incredible. You, you mentioned HIV, how far we've come with that, where you could actually take a preventative pill now called PrEP. I don't remember what the, the acronym stands for. It's, and if you look back in the 80s, when that first started, where it was almost a guaranteed death sentence. It's pretty amazing where we came from that. Yeah. Well, that's kind of why I have to have hope with this disease. Um, you know, people live so long uh, with HIV now, and PrEP is awesome. I mean, I have so many friends that take it um, just to make sure they don't get HIV. I mean, so we there's so much stuff we can do uh we just like i said when we started talking we just need time um time to study this time to work on it and that's what yeah that's why i'm hoping there's still that chance they're saying that this could be endemic and over the summer we'll get a reprieve and hopefully during that reprieve we could figure out some kind of medication or antiviral therapy that'll um at least save lives um Are you concerned or is your hospital concerned about if there's a double whammy this fall where there's a nasty flu strain and coronavirus? Are they, are they prepping for that now or is that a major problem to them? I think we're probably going to be prepared just like we were for the um, pandemic. I think we know what we can do. We know what we're capable of as a unit. I mean, I've never seen anything run so smoothly um teamwork has been ridiculous all across every system and specialty everyone is working as a team um you know to help these patients to be prepared for them to have as many beds available and to treat people as safely as possible um i would imagine we're just going to be vigilant i have a feeling that we won't stop testing people i think that through the uh, years past, we would not test people over the summer for flu. And in the past few years, we've noticed that people were still testing positive for flu, you know, all the way through May and June. So I just, I have a feeling that all of the things we've been doing now, we're just going to continue just so we keep track of these, these numbers and these cases. And, you know, cause as soon as we have another case, you know, if we ever get a reprieve and there are no cases, as soon as we get another case, it's going to be back in this mode of, of you know, like extreme isolation and, um, you know, extreme precaution. I mean, I think it's changed everybody's practice already. I mean, uh, they put in, they installed like all these new Purell dispensers in the hospital and they are legit like a week after being put in they're empty i mean people are literally already like hand washing way more than they um and i don't know i'm we don't have any visitors so that's all that's all us doing that 
So everyone's being extra careful there. Yeah, so, so vigilant. <laughs> hopefully you won't have the second wave like some people are predicting, but I guess you have to prepare for it anyway. So do you you still are you're still having symptoms now from you being infected? So yeah, I like around uh, the day 17 of when I first was diagnosed, I started having some chest pain. Um it's not a symptom that is chronic. So they basically said I could come back to work when I didn't have consistent symptoms and I didn't have, like a symptom that was lasting for 72 hours straight, like the fever. So I uh, have no symptoms except this uh, persistent uh, nagging chest pain that feels like um, a small animal has been sitting on my chest. It seems to be worse um, in the evening and worse just when I'm more active, um, I spoke to my cardiologist and I'm taking around the clock NSAIDs um, just because there's so much inflammation we're seeing with this disease that it could just be, um, you know, post-viral um, inflammation. My, I, you know, I know there are a lot of patients clotting. I don't think I have a PE. My resting heart rate is normal, but I've had to talk myself off the ledge many a time. Um from worried about myself having an ominous subclinical diagnosis, you know, I just haven't been tested for because nobody wants to test uh, COVID positive patients anywhere, which kind of sucks. Yeah. Are you being treated almost like a scarlet letter because you have or had or maybe still have COVID-19? Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, and I know other people feel the same way. We kind of feel like we are, uh, just, oh, you know, take care of yourself. Um, you know, just self monitor. Um, and then even when I got back to work, a couple people commented, why didn't I have this done and this done and this done? You know, it's not like I can order these tests myself and just walk into a a place and have it done. Um, somebody's got to order these tests for me. I'm not going to order a CAT scan on myself. Um, and I'm also, I also think that some of it is literally just anxiety. Um, you know, I know the chest pain is real, but when I'm anxious, it's worse. So I think I just have to stay the course um, and communicate. I mean, my PCP has been great. We communicate uh, via telehealth. A uh, I text my cardiologist. Um, I know they want to do tests on me. Um, we just have to figure out how to arrange it. Um, but because I have been able to get back to exercise, and I'm not short of breath. Like I said, I, I don't think I have any of the um, things that are the possibilities with this disease. It's, it's amazing that, you know, you, what is it now? Almost 30 days that you've, since you've got sick and you're still to a degree. Yeah, having... over 30, 30 days and five days out. So 35 days now that I know how to do math. <laughs> and so if I was, I, I may have asked you this before, but it's interesting to ask again. If, if I was around you, would you still be infectious enough to get me sick or someone else sick? I don't think so. Um I think you would. Uh, so there's there's this idea floating around that um, the uh, the virus is still shedding in our in feces, basically. So you would literally have to come in contact with my feces, which is why we also consider the disease contact um, and fecal oral 
specifically contact and then you can also touch your hand uh touch your hands to your face rather um but i don't think that i'm uh respiratory droplet shedding anymore um you know but that being said if i blow have to blow my nose um i don't do it any in any public area and i definitely uh wash my hands immediately after um but i don't i don't personally think it's possible that i'm still that contagious um it it just i don't know with any other viral illness i mean think you're that contagious i mean the only other one that i can think of that is kind of weird is um herp which you can shed uh all the time um but you're just shedding more when you have an active lesion so Hopefully it's not like herpes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that, I won't be a forever COVID shedder. That would be it's because I've heard story like there's a guy on YouTube um, who he was still testing positive like thirty plus days after yeah. that he had to be isolated for thirty because they're saying you could still and that's why I asked you because. They were saying to him, his doctor, that he could still infect people. And he, he just finally, I think, could be wrong. I haven't watched him rec- that recently. But uh, I think he finally now can go back into the normal world. So I don't think we know the meaning of what it means if you're still testing positive. I mean, like, uh, if you're, I mean, if he, if he was symptomatic, that's one thing. But if, he, if he's not having symptoms, um, of cough and sneeze or, you know, I, I can't imagine that he would still be shedding virus. I th- basically, they, my doctor, the infectious disease doctor, everybody I spoke with, I had three different people clear. They said, if you're not coughing and you don't have a fever anymore, you're not, you're not contagious. And again, that doesn't mean that I'm not shedding it through my feces, but I'm not a, a baby. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I can keep my hands clean. Um, and a friend sent me an article that a woman in Italy, a 23 year old is still testing positive and it's been over 60 days. So again, I don't, I just don't think we know what it means, um, when you continue to test positive. Um, I mean, I think about MRSA too, like a bacteria, like you, you can just be colonized with certain bacteria and maybe it's something similar like that, like. It's there, but it doesn't mean it's gonna make you uh, uh, get like everyone that comes near you is gonna all of a sudden have MRSA or COVID. I don't know. So, what do you think will be like a year from now? What will be the outcome of coronavirus? Where do you think will be a year from now? If you just had to take a guess, I don't know. Uh, I just hope that we don't forget um and i hope that people maintain a level of respect for healthcare providers and healthcare workers across the spectrum um because a lot of us are used to not being treated that great um and this has been a very bizarre uh time when people seem to really appreciate everything we're doing even though we have been risking our lives for a very long time care of people and doing uh, basically really undesirable things. I mean, 
think about all the people who are working in radiology and they're getting uh, exposure to radiation all the time and the chemo nurses that are constantly being exposed to chemotherapy and all the precautions they have to take and then us who are constantly around people with infection. Um, so I just hope that we, you know, just never forget this and that we stay vigilant and we keep working on um, a vaccine and treatments even if we don't see a second wave um, because we cannot forget this has been traumatizing for all. It has been traumatizing for everybody. Well, I want to thank you, Kara, for coming on and I hope you continue to feel better and beyond you getting physically better i know it's probably emotionally draining with what you're doing so stay strong out there thank you it's been a pleasure being on All right, not a problem though no, thank you and thank you for everything that you're doing of course it's my pleasure